Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Thomas Del Vecchio, Alt Data founder and angel investor. In our conversation, Thomas and I discuss his background creating tech survey data provider ETR and have a topical discussion about how alt data providers have to cope with difficult markets before finishing up talking about Thomas's new project. Meanwhile, if you have a notable or new data set that you would like to discuss on the podcast, do get in touch. So in this episode, I am joined by Thomas Del Vecchio. Thank you very much for joining today, Thomas. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. You're very welcome. Um, Thomas, I think I want to present you as a kind of, you're a three-act person in, in this world. I don't know how many acts you are in life, but um, in this world, um, in that you have a history of, first of all, being an alternative data provider. Um, and then you have been an angel investor and you are just launching a new project um, for your for your present and future. So that's that's the kind of three act. Do you think that's do you think that's fair? I think that's a very fair assessment. Excellent. Well, let us begin then. Why don't we why don't we go through them chronologically? Um, so why don't you start by just uh, just telling me how you first came across the idea of alternative data? Where does that come from? I would answer that by saying, first and foremost, that I probably didn't come across the idea of alternative data. I came across the idea of market research. And so in about 2007, I was working with a company called the InfoPro or TIP which was a survey-based research firm that was surveying the largest buyers of information technology products. So your chief information officers, your chief security officers, your chief technology officers of Global 2000 companies and federal governments. And they were serving them, surveying them in the standard way that people surveyed at that time. They were calling them on the phone. They were finding them at trade conferences. And they were trying to find you know, qualified applicants that would tell us what their spending intentions were, the products they were using at a, let's call it a, a Chevron or a Gap or the NFL or the DOD. And with that, they would collectively put together an old-fashioned you know, 10 megabyte PDF file, and they would sell that research back to the actual technology vendors. So it was really used as a voice of the customer type of product and sell that back to the Cisco's and the Microsoft's of the world. I was there on behalf of one of the investors, so one of the, the largest majority holder of that company at the time asked me to go in and basically assess the company and give recommendations and then implement said recommendations on improving it. And I kind of stumbled across what was a much larger problem and opportunity, to be honest, anytime there's a problem is an opportunity in my perspective, much larger opportunity than we expected. And this is 07, 08, which was, you know, no one in a standardized manner is collecting a clean and uh, a predictable kind of data set on spending attentions and, uh, for CIOs in the world. There was basically, let's survey and find a nugget in the 10 megabytes rather than saying, let's cast a large net on hundreds, if not thousands of technology vendors from hundreds, if not thousands of chief technology officers, and therefore as a proxy to their corporations and find out really what's going on. And then 
from a data perspective, fine tuning into what is contrarian, meaning let's not waste the time of pounding on the table and identifying consensus. Let's not look into that data and say, everybody's already right. Microsoft's going to do wonderful this year. Let's go into where the data based on Global 2000 voices are saying, this is what's really going on with VMware and server virtualization versus maybe what the notion was. Because there's value there for the technology vendor, the equity investor, the CIO, the CTO, who's making software procurement decisions. So would you say you took what was a what was a, a, a familiar space, which was kind of a survey space, and you basically kind of dated it up. You made it more quantitative, where perhaps it had been a bit more quantitative. Is that is that is that fair? Yeah. What I wanted to do was take something that is qualitative and make it quantitative. Take a survey mm-hmm. question that is qualitative and then record it about a range of spend and make it quantitative and then structure and make it standardized so I could get to a time series and then back test it. So yes. Fantastic. How did you, and so you created this and then presumably you had to do a lot of education to investors to tell them that they needed this. Cause if we're talking the end of the first decade of this century, then um, there weren't necessarily that many investors who knew that they needed data like this. Yeah, well, you just successfully made me feel old and hit the nail on the head with one comment. So, yes, it was the end of the first decade of the century. And I was there, too. Don't worry, Thomas. I was there, too. Yes, but with a bib on. The, <laughs> so 100%, I would say it was actually a really insightful comment by yourself. Re-education and education of the buy side, which was my primary end user market at the time, was ended up becoming paramount, which I did not realize at first. For me, and you know, my naive, naivete, I believed if I went, you know, knocked on the door of a giant hedge fund that had a significant allocation to TMT or technology media tele, you know, telecom, and said, I've got this great data that comes from these kinds of people, it can be predictive, it should be predictive, they would immediately go, oh my goodness, you're right, that's wonderful. How much money can I throw at you for the spreadsheet of data? That was not the case in 2008. So Upon learning that there was an opportunity at the InfoPro, the the firm that owned the InfoPro that I worked for sold it to a private equity fund. And I basically went to that, to that team, a father-son, and said, this is the idea that I have that was born from my experience there for the last two years. So officially, I kind of went on the other side of the table and became the entrepreneur versus then the family office biz dev professional. And I became the person that they were capitalizing. And we started basically on a shoestring budget, what was called and what is still called Enterprise Technology Research, or ETR, which was this endeavor in April of 09. And back then, you're absolutely right. So I got to the business of standing up a survey-based data-driven firm, because the idea was it's going to be a data-driven market research firm, and the data is going to be proprietary data and primary research. So we're going to take in surveys, and then we're going to structure it and visualize it, and then we're going to track it, and then we're going to backtest it. Instead of collecting, let's say, you know, data points from a signal or source or off IP addresses and looking at the exhaust of software being moved from IP address to another. And this was all in the technology space. And actually, I mean, technology had been, I don't know when you would say the beginning of the technology boom would be, well, it would probably be the dot-com boom, I suppose. So, so kind of the arrival of that. But 
either way, the last 20 years have been all about technology, haven't they? So you've, you, were, you were selling information about the technology space at a time when technology was very much on the up and the fangs were were taking over at the top of the top of the um you know top of the markets uh so it was a, it was a good time to be selling information on technology i would think it was a fantastic time and that's kind of the opportunity that i i diagnosed it is you know it was kind of the old thinking of if you know if you want to live in the center of the world where do you want to live at that time and you know in our time some people might say it's new york and in other times they might say it was rome during the roman empire when you came to this industry if you talk about wall street you talk about because there wasn't really a data industry yet so really it was just a it was a wrinkle within research of wall street because there wasn't an alternative data space yet so i never mm-hmm. thought of myself as an alternative data space provider I was a market researcher who had an alternative process. Mm. That's really what it was. I don't, I don't think Pearl Jam ever thought of themselves as an alternative rock band. They were playing alternative rock music. So, um, and so you were, and so you, you rode a, you rode a, a joyous wave. Um, it sounds like you, you were, you were selling alternative data before it was, before it was alternative data, and you were doing it in technology as that was growing. So, um, you had a, you had a fun time. It, I, I, I suspect over the last ten years. It, I'm, I'm looking. You're kind of January two thousand and nine to January twenty twenty, um, selling this. So it's, it was a, it was a, it was a, a glorious period. I would think. It was, it, it, yes and no, it was, uh, you know, kind of like the Renaissance, right? The very beginning, there was so much re-education, it was uh, pounding your head against a wall. I was trying to convince people they needed to buy data. So we really spent, to be completely frank, we spent pretty much 09 to fourteen fifteen, maybe six years, uh, standing up the business, collecting the data, and, you know, pulling people by the teeth and the nose into being research buyers that, you know, became happy subscribers one to quarter, one to two quarters later when they saw the efficacy and how predictive the data was. But we were also basically, we were also rebuilding an entire research firm, right? My, my idea, my hypothesis was they would buy the spreadsheet. They didn't buy the spreadsheet. So we had to build a research firm and build research reports. So fundamental investors, before there was a, a quant and a quantumental, right? We had to build that fundamental research report and sell the fundamental research reports from a data set to show them how it could be used and why it mattered to their, let's call it, Oracle holding. Mm. Then the then really the currents changed and from what was a headwind became a tailwind. And I saw that tailwind come basically, I would say a year after cloud took over in the enterprise. So call it 15, 16 you could feel the winds of change. And now I was getting inbound emails from 26-year-old analysts at large equity funds saying, I know what you do. It's turnkey. How do I sign up? Which mm. was not the case in 2010 or 2011. But mm. by then, we had already built an entire uh, use case, test case, and, and, and deliverables and literature. You know, Because we were backtesting the data, we had created a linear regression model. And so we were looking at the efficacy mapping our data versus revenues, licenses, and subscriptions for companies. And at that point, at five to six years worth of data, we could tell you at a very high confidence level that, and this is a hypothetical, IBM is going to miss by at least 200 basis points versus their, you know, versus consensus over the next nine to 10 months. And that would also reason- play out to be true. And the reason was because your surveys were saying that the, all the people who were buying IBM last year, you know, 7% of them have stopped and have switched to a competitor to IBM. And so IBM's um, revenues are going to be down. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one 
simplified way to do it. But yes, by just looking at if, if you have 1,500 CIOs, chief information, not, chief information and technology officers, taking the survey from basically the global 2,000. So they're very representative of overall global IT demand. And they're just the smallest nuance, right? Because it's really, it's really very dependent on also the vendor. So if you have, to give you two examples, if you have those 1,500 people and you're using that example of like IBM, and one or two of them at very large organizations, maybe the Fortune 10 companies, are saying they're going from increasing spend to a flat spend year over year, that could be enough that IBM misses because IBM's growth expectation was maybe only 2% that year. Inversely, if you had a small, very disruptive new company that maybe IPO'd two years ago at the time, and they're expected to continue to grow at 40 and 50% a year, they could have extraordinarily positive data where so many people are adopting and increasing, but the rate of acceleration in the survey is not as strong as it was last year. They could miss and have 35% growth, and the data could indicate that, and that could be a 20% drop in share price. Okay, nice. So this is uh, so it's becoming increasingly predictive, and your customers were becoming increasingly interested and and uh, more fish in barrel like. Um, what uh, what was the competition like? Was that growing? Were you seeing other people having the same idea, and so that started getting getting trickier? Yes and no. So you know, it's uh, it's 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 a very unique business model. When we started the business model, and this is a true story, I actually started the entire research sample on LinkedIn. I created a free public group on LinkedIn, and I invited people based on their profile into a closed group of enterprise IT decision makers, which were largely chief information officers, free of VAR, salespeople, media, and you know buy side and venture analysts. So really just their peers, really clean knowledge exchange group. As time went on, and as you would say, data privacy became a hotter, hotter, hot button, and people became much more concerned. And in the advent of GDPR, it's very difficult to replicate and build that sample again. Now, if you reached out, you know, I was doing this in the early days of LinkedIn before the acquisition. They weren't even public yet. It was kind of not everybody even knew what LinkedIn was. And that was kind of my thesis of going from the InfoPro to the to ETR, what I created, which was make an electronic survey, identify people using LinkedIn that they're qualified for the survey and replicate the S&P 500 and then get them to take the survey electronically and then give it back to them every quarter so they can update it so you can track the individuals and see how they are without sharing the individual. But you can see that it's an energy company that's based in the US that's a Fortune 10 company publicly traded, which is really useful data, but still compliant. But trying to build that sample now and even when competition, quote unquote, tried to catch up. It proved to be very difficult. There was several hedge funds that tried to copy our model internally and failed. There were several, you know, pervasive, large household name technology market research firms that tried to do it. And the problem was for a lot of chief information officers, they saw the value prop in what we did. They took the survey, seconds later, they hit submit, and they could see the data in real time and it would refresh as more of their peers took the survey over two weeks. And then they got access to a data visualization dashboard that they and their teams could use for their own software procurement and budget allocation. There was not a, let's wait 90 days and give you a PDF and a webinar and charge you to come to a, co a conference. There was not an upsell 
to try and get them to do a expert network call. So they weren't really, we, we really treated the CIOs like the advocates and the linchpin of the business, which is what they really were. And for them, it was really low friction. They just took the survey, got the data back in real time, were able to communicate with peers and see the data. But when you look at other kind of call it conflicted interest inherently models, whether it be a, a sell side firm, uh, you know, a large bulge bracket Brinks research firm trying to do a survey or a tech market research firm that's also trying to sell them products and expertise and consulting, you, know, you see the buy-in by the CIO goes down. And then you add the data privacy issue, which became more and more of an issue in 15, 16, and they didn't already have these research samples and these communities taking surveys. And it became a very difficult model to catch up, which made the model more valuable, to be honest. It sounds like a, a, a business with a very nice moat um, ETR. Correct. So the fact that you've been doing it for so long is one of those beauties of, of data, isn't it? That the longer you you go, then the more you're accumulating the value. And then it's very hard to, um, and then you can get really dominant positions in, in your market. Yes, but um, the other side of that coin is the fragility. And, the, and that's what people forget. The, the other side of the moat is the fragility, right? And what I mean by that is when the moat comes, the bridge comes down and you let one into your castle, not unlike the Trojan horse, and the drawbridge has been raised. Now the wolf is inside the hen house. Who's the wolf, Thomas? Who was the wolf? The wolf is the internal strife. So the, yeah. pro- the, pro- the only problem with a great competitive moat based on a very differentiated process and a captive community is if you don't manage the captive community and the process correctly. Because the entire linchpin of data that's predictive is that all the data is clean, and standardize quarter after quarter, year after year. And when some bricks are taken out of that foundation, the house can fall down. Because if you bring in bad data and put on top of eight years of data, you can't continue to run a well, uh, an, an efficient model and predictive model based on portions of the data that might not be as strong as previous portions of the data. So what happened? Oh, I... I what happened? I mean, I couldn't really say what happened. I wasn't there. I haven't been there since January of 2020. Uh, I'm just saying that was the inherent fragility we always concerned ourselves with when I was leading the organization. When I was leading the organization, I was obsessed with, you know, how to get more CIOs that were qualified to take the survey, how to get the ones that were already taking the survey to take more time on the survey, how to get them to be more involved, and how to take other adjacent surveys. That was, that's what kept me up at night because that was the linchpin. I'm not saying that isn't true. I'm just saying I'm not there, but I always knew on the other side of that, while I was there, I always knew the day the CIOs wake up and don't take the survey or don't take as much time on the survey for whatever reason is the day that our forecasting will go down precipitously Hmm. in terms of efficacy. Interesting. Okay. So January, 2020, um, you leave ETR, um, and since then, for, for I want to say that you have been investing in technology companies. You've been kind of an angel investor and advisor on various boards. You've been um, you've been active in the space in in that in that way. Um, have you been? Would you say your investment has been uh, all alternative data kind of ETR style? companies or have you spread beyond that? Uh, I would say it's largely what I know and largely what I know is research data and software. Uh, So that's what it largely is. I have stepped out of it 
Uh, there's a great company that I got involved with about a year ago called Pepper the App. That's a consumer-facing vertical social app. You know, call it uh, Strava for for cooking and recipes, which has done really well. And it's still an early stage company uh, led by a great CEO founder named Jake. But I've strung together now uh, approximately just less than three dozen portfolio companies. Uh, it's something I've just enjoyed really doing and feel like it was a natural next step in my life. I didn't really want to get back in the seat of launching a, a venture backed or a bootstrapped company again. I've already done that a couple of times over the last 15 years. And I wanted to spend a little more time at home, which the last job didn't allow me to do since I constantly traveled and lived in the office. So I wanted to be able to basically and call it almost giving back. So, you know, I've, I was an athlete before I was a working professional and I've been a coach pretty much on and off in my life between football and lacrosse uh, for the last call it 25 years. And to me, I felt it was another extension of almost coaching that I wanted to be involved with, you know, really passionate, really bright founders. So I would say mm. I, I've been looking at it more as investing in people than in companies, because when you're talking about companies that are this nascent, that are often pre the the first safe, and they're basically just post friends and family round, they're so nascent, you're really putting your chips or placing your bet on the individual. I've just seen Warren Buffett on my Twitter feed saying that he doesn't invest in stocks, he invests in companies. So you're taking it one step back and saying, I don't invest in companies, I invest in people. I wonder I wonder what the step after that will be. Well, I'm looking at your investments and you've mentioned Pepper the app, but there's a few familiar names from this from this podcast. We've got Revelio Labs, who've, who've been on the podcast. We've got Nomad Data. Brad Schneider, um, Lagoon as well, a very familiar name. So um, Paragon Intel is another one I know. So, you're, so you have been investing in the alternative data space. Absolutely. Um, what's your view on where the alternative data space is now? Obviously, you've been in it for a very long time since almost before it existed or, or you know, early days. Um, what, what, how would you see, how would you characterize where alternative data is now in, in, in 2022? I would say right now, the current assessment would be it's right in the midst of growing pains. Alternative data is going from, I would say, uh, teenage years to young adulthood. And it's trying, to, it's trying to wrap its heads around that as an industry. Uh, I'd say it's very analogous to software. And so, you know, the, the software versus, you know, from a world that was largely hardware uh, and the enterprise buying in the world operating on hardware with limited software, we've moved into almost an all software world. And there were natural growing pains that technology companies had to go through. And I'd say it's the same thing for alternative data companies, alternative data vendors, alternative data providers, there, and, and all the machinations around that, because we are at the stage where there are marketplaces, right? Nomad is a marketplace. It's a great and novel and brilliant marketplace, which is why I invested. And they are. And that didn't exist just a few years prior. It was just disparate vendors. But over time and maturation, now you come to someone that says, you do your great job of collecting this great data. I'll do a great job of getting this to the people that want it. And that's, that's a natural maturation. But now we're going, through, we're going through a time frame when we're having one of the first downturns in capital markets, you know, first one mm -hmm. in probably over a decade. So now there's less dollars in the research budgets. We're all contingent on research budgets. Research budgets are all based on assets under management and alpha. And you have a much savvier buyer. Ten years ago, five years ago, if somebody was assessing a data firm, they would say, where's the data coming from? That was pretty much it. And if they thought where the data was coming from was strong, they were able to pay for it. 
and that would be part of, let's call it hedge funds, research futures. So maybe year one, they'd be willing to do a $25,000 or $35,000 contract. And if they saw some ROI in it, or if they believed it helped them on a couple of names in their portfolio, then they might ratchet that up to 60 to 70, which is where the data provider wanted them to be, or sign a multi-year contract. But that that whole model has changed because now almost all these firms, the advent of the last five years since maybe call it 2018, is you have like a head data chief, a data liaison, a chief data scientist at all of these funds that really put an emphasis on data, which is pretty much all funds now. There's very few funds that are mm. you know, purely fundamental still. I'm sure there are, but they're definitely in the minority now, which they were not before. And now you have this advent of, now the the entire quote unquote book of business of alternative data salespeople that were originally probably equity sell research salespeople that left uh, Think Equity or Goldman Sachs in the '90s to join the sales forces of the alternative data or the boutique market research firm, their book of business is less valuable because their book of business was portfolio managers and analysts, and the person that they need to deal with largely now is the data liaison or the data officer. And so they have to work into that relationship and get the analyst to be the advocate to win over the, but that person's trying to also justify their seat as to why there is a chief data scientist here now at, let's call it 0.72 or whatever massive hedge fund you want to talk about, which wasn't a job seven years ago. Hmm. So it's a very, the model's been disrupted. And then as you have this kind of sell-off or weak capital markets, whatever you want to refer to it as, you have people that are now much more savvy because they're a chief data officer. So they're, they've are they got a much more effective way to measure the ROI of the data set than to simply say, where does it come from? That's good data. They're actually modeling it to look at the efficacy. So they might not renew next year. So you've got data scientists now judging data scientists that are on the research side, which is a new phenomenon. So that's probably going to change the way the terms of agreements need to be and the way in which people buy data. So it's been very much one size fits all. Here's an ELA. But where I think it needs to go is it needs to be consumption based, like software's become. And software went through that growing pain when we went from all hardware to all software and contracts that were with Fortune 500 companies that were buying software and operating their entire massive stacks on it had to adjust that. And that's where I think it. I think it needs to be a a buy-as-you-go, eat-what-you-want, credit-based system that's flexible and it it can balance out quarter-to-quarter, year-over-year, so both the acquirer of the data and the provider of the data feel like there's a true partnership that can flow back and forth rather than just a quarterly or annually wire. And if they didn't get value out of it, that money's lost. So potentially that's selling just a, a part of the data. Um, from a, So what you're saying potentially is that an alternative data provider is used to selling an entire data set with, you know, a vast number of tickers um, and, a, and a, you know, a very large universe. And then the buyer up to now, uh, perhaps if it's a quant fund, it's used at all. Um, but if it's a fundamental um, fund, then it's investor, it's been using, I don't know, five or 10 tickers. Um, if you're talking about how would you how would you would you be selling it on a kind of just a tickers basis or, or how would you be cutting it down into smaller chunks to sell it um, the, the, the get the buy what you buy what you eat stuff? Yeah, I think there's a number of ways to do it. I think the, the, the linear initial thought 
and this is something I encountered in call 2012, 2013, was do it ticker-based. But data doesn't work that way. So if you, if you use the example of what I used to do with survey-based, you know, you're, you're surveying within sectors, right? So you're, you're asking people about their spend on Cisco within networking, which is 80% of its business. But network, but Cisco's going to show up again in security and other areas because, you know, it's Cisco and they have a, a very large product portfolio. And so if I say it's got to be Cisco and they're going to say, okay, well, I just want to see the data from Cisco in the 11 categories of products that Cisco sells into the enterprise. That's great. But then immediately the conversation is going to be, well, this is in context. I see the score, but that doesn't matter if I can't see the score of, let's say, if you're talking about like Cisco's WebEx, mm. I can't see the score versus Zoom. Oh, so now you need the Zoom data. Well, I need it to have context. Okay, so you need all of the WebEx. You need all of the productivity category. So you need all to see all 17 vendors in that sector. So are you buying the sector now? Are you buying Cisco? And it becomes, so I think it's more of, what I think it more of is, and this is something we tried to start playing with, is if you, if you host your data as a data visualization dashboard instead of a data dump, where you, you you know you force a quant fund in and take your uh, you know your AWS uh, bucket and just dump all that data quarterly, which is idiotic. And now analysts got a well-paid analyst have to spend their time trying to find a signal in there. But what if you just let them go go through your open API, come into your site, take your data like a data room, the way an investment banker or a fund would look at the data room of an early stage company's financials. Go into that data room, which is live breathing data as the survey is updated or wherever you collect your data. Maybe it's more frequently that you're collecting your data a different way. But you can then look at what they did access and how they accessed it and charge them retroactively. So whether your data has value or not, if said analyst and portfolio manager did not log in and did not pull from that data to use it as part of their mosaic, it doesn't matter. You shouldn't probably get that get those soft dollars or that hard dollar check. And inversely, if they were living inside your platform, it shouldn't be your fault that they didn't make effective decisions on that. And you should still be paid for that consumption. Yeah, the data doesn't move. Just people come and come and look at it where it is. And I don't. And I shouldn't be judged at your inefficiency of using the data generate alpha. Is there an issue with this in that uh, particularly the, the the types of investors that we're talking about, they are very worried about people knowing what they're doing and what they're doing with the data. And if and if they're coming and looking in the shop and picking something up and, and uh, you know, doing doing something with it, then um, at least the shop owner is going to know what they did with it. Um, and so that's a, that's a potential security risk, isn't it? At the moment, a lot of alternative data providers complain that they never hear. They just, you know, they, they, they send the data into the, into the shop and then um, into, the, into the fund. And then, and then the, the fund comes back a year later saying, yes, please, we want more without knowing what they did with it. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, obviously, it's in the buy side's advantage. It's in, it's in their best interest to not allow the data provider to know how valuable their data is in their process. I knew for a fact that our data was largely the smoking gun for many firms because they would say it to other people when they get back to me, but then they would tell me or my sales force that, you know, hey guys, it's just one piece of my puzzle. You know, we always, and, and we'd say, okay, well then, you know, I guess you won't pay the price increase. And it's like, no, 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 we definitely will. It's like, okay, now we know. But, and, and I understand that, right? That's part of the gamesmanship of sales. And, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. I, I, would, I would say to that though, Right. 
there's the other side of it, which is if you come to it transparently and say, my issue is you knowing how much I use your platform because it'll affect my price and or you could share that information. You know, uh, example, the sell side, knowing both sides of the information flow. They know who's buying what stock. They know the IPO. They're on both sides of the Chinese wall. And they, you know, they're placing bets often against their own clients that they're taking they're taking order flow from. It, it's easily addressed up front. So you have a you have a good general counsel or outside general counsel external, and you have a thorough master agreement that says we are only allowed to monitor the usage of our platform to make a more effective and better license agreement with you, the client. We're not allowed to trade on it. We're not allowed to share it. We're not allowed to anonymize it and use it. We can't use it for industry statistics. We can't share it with a competitive fund. But, and, and also here is the, 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 essentially the bracket of how much we can charge more next year and how much you can come down next year on the consumption model. So they can't say, you looked at it, you knew we lived on the platform 24 hours a day, the entire calendar year with seven analysts, and now you're tripling the price. That bracketing of price doesn't allow it. And that was predetermined in the master agreement. So as long as people are willing to be transparent on what's important to them without telling them exactly why it's important to them, it can be addressed in the relationship because at the end of the day, it might be data, but it's based on a relationship between an asset management firm and a data provider. Do you think there's enough trust in the market for that? Um, in that I'm aware that you obviously say there are some large established alternative data providers who, if they say they'll do it using compliance, then you can you can feel you can feel pretty safe. I wonder if there are also alternative data providers that flicker in and out of existence quite quite suddenly, quite rapidly. And and I don't know if they have been around long enough or have strong enough processes that a buy side would be even with you know, a, a legal agreement. I wonder if they would still feel like entirely inst- entirely protected. Well, this is what I know. And you say that, and I kind of chuckled to myself when you said, is there enough Is there enough trust? There's no trust in the market. There's never going to be trust in the market. Mm. <laughs> it's, in, it's inherently inverse to trust. What there is, and what I place my trust in, is that there is greed. And that there is a fund that wants to generate alpha because one person wants to keep their seat at the hedge fund and another person wants that person's seat. And every fund wants to outperform the other fund so they can get more of those institutional dollars from pension and retirement funds. As long as you can trust in that, in that competition, then you can trust that they will compromise some of the trust they want to have to have the agreement, to have the data they know will help them succeed. And that's what you need to trust. You need to trust that they realize they need your data to outperform. And therefore, they'll compromise some other elements, which is, and these aren't significant compromises. It's that they have to have trust in the master agreement that you're not shopping their activity on the platform. And obviously, if you sign a master agreement as a firm and you have investors, no no C-level team, even at an early stage company, even if it's a research firm, is going to, they're a fiduciary of the company if they have investors, is going to shop that data, which is inverse to the master agreement of the firm. That would be a recipe for being bounced out of your own startup. Yeah, it's it's I so I don't want to I don't want to dwell too much on the point, but you know, somebody in that alternative data provider leaves and they go to another firm, or they you know, can you track that kind of security breach because they have the knowledge, you know, they know what was happening. 
So, I mean, obviously this, this, this type of thing happens with hedge funds for sure, but with with hedge funds, at least they're tracking their own ex-employees, but you have to track the ex-employees of all your providers as well. That's, that's an extra level. But this, but has this changed? I mean, this has been going on with the sell side for decades. Every, every single trader on the trade desk at Goldman Lee's and has all that knowledge of what names these guys, mm. but that, but that information has a timestamp, right? That has a short half-life that's going to expire mm. because once they're no longer in that information flow at that alternative data provider or on that sell side desk, that, that dynamic is going to change, which is goes back to the fragility before of the business model. I said that had a great moat. Once that model changes with people changes, you have to worry if the model is being continued in the right fashion therefore the time series is still valuable you can't just because somebody worked at goldman five years ago doesn't mean what was going on at the time with all these massive hedge funds that he was privy to five years ago is still true it's probably not true they're probably completely swimming in different names and being run by different analysts and portfolio managers fair enough fair enough you got me fair enough thomas next question um so coming back to that kind of what type of alternative data company or what kind of or, or just kind of the, the shape of, of this market, particularly, as you mentioned, the kind of it's, this is a first time alternative data really has had to deal with a market in, 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 a, in a downward downward move. Um, do you um, what kind of investor do you think continues wanting alternative data in that world? I've got a I've got a vague feeling that potentially. The most sophisticated, the 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 long short hedge fund is continuing to um, think they can make money in this market, um, and continuing to think that you know down is as good as up because as long as you got volatility, then you can you can make money from it, and so potentially might end up feeling just as rich as they have for the last ten years, or or even richer depending on depending on their strategy, um, and so and also as is equally motivated to. Um, by alternative data, because that's going to continue to inform their process. Um, whereas perhaps along only um, who had been dabbling in alternative data when things are going up, I wonder if along only will will be as interested when everything's going down. I wonder, do you have any views on what um, what this means for the potential market? I mean, any time of a market downturn because of the long onlys. And the amount of what I would call ancillary buyers. So, you know, 90% of all market research, if not more, uh, from a dollar's perspective, especially, you know, uh, research that's equities facing, is going to be consumed by by Wall Street, whether it be, you know, long only in hedge funds. But you've always got those, you know, you've always got that other, pe- that very small part of the pie, whether it be some corporate buyers of the data or whether it be a venture firm that actually spends money on alternative data and actually has a research budget because VCs are notorious for not spending money on research, external research. So there's always going to be the problem that, okay, well, if, if 90% of my revenues come from long only and long short, and the market's only going down at this point, and long onlys can't make money on that, they might as well freeze up their research budget, not waste dollars, because they can be more profitable having a, a lower asset management fee or 12B1 fee on the fund because they're spending less money on research and therefore, you know, IRR can be, IRR can be better. So there's always that thinking and it's a legitimate thinking because it's true, but that really isn't the way I believe management teams of alternative data providers and research firms should think about their business. 
they should be thinking about and they should be obsessed with differentiating their research and their data and the way they deliver it and the way people engage with it and generate alpha. And if you focus your time, your energy, your capital, your R&D and improving your competitive distance, and therefore you're always going to improve your elasticity. Now, remember, you're talking about a, what has been historically a massively growing pie, which is research dollars and research dollars flowing to alternative data versus traditional Wall Street, bulge bracket, boutique bank equity data. So if that pie, if that pie modestly contracts, I would say it's a fair statement to say this, Mark. While the overall pie on TAM might contract for research budgets, it's probably in, within the slices of pie. The, sl the amount of dollars that we're going to traditional will just go more to alternative data. And the actual pie that is alternative data probably won't contract much. Because alternative data is the future either way. That's right. So you're going to see an acceleration of the shift. We were So use this analogy or use this metaphor. We were always going to a hybrid work model, but the pandemic forced us into the Zoom world. But we were already going there on a 30-year march and had been marching mm -hmm. on it for 15 years. We're already moving to an all-data all model, you know, for the most part. And we've been marching away from fundamental data for a decade and more since, you know, I've been doing it since 07. And it started a little bit before me, maybe. So it'll be almost two decades soon. But that's infancy. That's the, we're not even at 20% full adoption yet. We are going to mm -hmm. see a point where the spend on alternative data wildly outsizes the spend on traditional data. It might be 30 years away, it might be tomorrow, it might be 100 years, but that's coming because there's a lot of reasons for it. Efficacy is one reason, manual manual uh, need and manipulation is another reason. And it all goes down to, you know, my famous statement, which was, you know, the slogan of our company that I said in 07 when I started it, when somebody at a hedge fund said, you know, so, you know, why are you doing all this? And I said, well, because, you know, opinions only exist due to a lack of data. Once there's enough data you don't really need to make a decision. It will clearly point in one direction or the other. Mm. You need great expertise in an opinion when there's not enough data. So if you were to look in the alternative data space right now and look for an investment to make, um, what type of, what would be your kind of perfect type of company that you would be backing to, 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 to cope the best right now? What kind of signals would you be looking for? Um, okay, so in, what I would look the... for, what I would look for is this. So, take your hat off about sectors and all that. I would say, okay, I agree with your earlier statement that there is opportunity and volatility, and therefore we don't know which way the markets are going to go. But there probably will continue to be a lot of volatility, whether it's net bullish or net bearish, we don't know. But there'll be volatility, and, and that's probably here to stay due to a lot of macroeconomic reasons, right? Not just inflation. You also have Ukraine, and you have other reasons. So you have that. So, okay, so if there's volatility and I can make money on the downside, where is a data set that can capture short and long opportunities if I'm an equity investor? So if I'm an investor in all data firms, I want to think of an old data firm that's got data that can help be predictive to longs and shorts. Let's not get into sectors yet. Then I'm going to say to myself as an investor into data firms, which is a firm that can bring me data that can be successfully sold outside of Wall Street? and increase the TAM, which kind of is the holy grail of alt data. Everybody's waiting for the first alt data firm to be super successful in selling into corporate, which is kind of the holy grail, and selling, right? the so web? Selling into corporates. Similar so, web? 
Yes, or CB Insights, or Yipit would like to do this, though I don't think they've had much yeah. success as of yet. But that is the holy grail because the TAM of corporate is far larger than the TAM of Wall Street. For sure. So then you think of that. So you say to yourself, okay, so now I've got my data firm investor hat on and I'm looking to buy more Paragon or more Nomad or more Lagoon or more Applied XL or more Revelio Labs, which I'm involved in all of them. And then, you know, or, or, or Baze and Co., which is another I'm involved in. And you say, okay, well, that, okay, so are they, are they getting data that's predictive in both directions, long and short? Do they have a data set? That is, that can be really advantageous to users in a different TAM or a larger TAM because you're bringing in new end users and customers such as corporates. Is there that, right? And then can they bring in investors? So what does that mean? Well, if you're already getting equity, that's fine. But can you get data that's useful to VCs? Why would I say is that true? Well, if there's one thing we've seen in the last two to three years, even before the market volatility of this year, we saw a massive shift over the last three years to hedge funds becoming multi-strategy advisors, basically meaning we also have a venture firm now. So now you've gotten, right, you've seen, you've seen Chase Coleman and John Curtis, who are two brilliant minds in the space, shift Tiger Global Management from one of the preeminent best growth and tech investors over the last 15 years into a top three venture firm. Cool. And they've done that almost overnight in the last three to five years. Now, if I'm pitching to Tiger Global, which might be the to, to the management firm that was equities only, that was a great TAM. But even they have shifted because they were smart enough to see we might have volatility in the equity markets, so we can still generate alpha maybe in the private markets, so maybe we should increase that size of our business. And that is reason for all these multi-strategy multi advisors. So if I'm buying data that's being sold, I want it to be able to sell to corporates, I want it to be able to sold to VCs. I want it to be able to be sold and be predictive to longs and shorts. So those are the first things on my criteria before I would even say what sector is it. Then when you get to sector, you'd say, how big is that sector, right? How meaningful is that sector, right? You have smaller sectors, right? Which is like maybe precious metals and mining where, you know, how valuable is that alternative data? And you can judge that based on the amount of tickers or companies that you're going to be able to track and invest in because that's a smaller space because that whole space is probably a hundred publicly traded vendors that at most are maybe 50 billion in market cap to largely micro and small caps. Or are you going to talk about maybe enterprise tech and TMT, which is a massive space with thousands of vendors and the largest market caps in the world on the publicly traded markets are tech companies. Hmm. So I would say, okay, Maybe I want to stay in tech a little longer. And then there's other areas. So, you know, if I'm putting my data hat on, I want data right now that covers tech, covers thousands of names, because there's thousands of customers on Wall Street, there's thousands of customers in Ventureland, and there's thousands of corporate customers, not just the technology companies that want to buy voice of the customer research from your data, but also the corporates like GE that just want to understand what's going on in the world for their product portfolios, their acquisitions, and a macro outlook. Because you can argue, and I always did, that how technology is faring by looking through the lens of how people are buying and selling products from 6,000 of the biggest technology companies in the world, from Microsoft down to Series A, 
will tell you exactly how the world's doing. Okay, that's a very comprehensive answer and very uh, very satisfying. Um, thank you. Thomas, we we at the beginning um, hinted towards a three acts and um, your third act is, is a venture you're just beginning and starting off and launching, I believe. But it's it's a little bit adjacent to alternative data. So I didn't want to spend too much time on it. Um, but in case it in case, you know, a, a very particularly relevant person happens to be listening to the alternative data podcast and and um, and can can uh, can, you know, um, get in touch, perhaps. Um, what, what's the what's the new venture? Well, what I'm trying to solve is kind of an age old question in the new world. And in the new world, We've had the advent of accelerators, incubators, Y Combinator, 500 startups, which have all done a tremendous job in accelerating the ability and the success and path of an idea and ideation and a founder to something in the marketplace. And they've largely done it in a win-win model that's been founder-friendly, good for the enterprises that will eventually buy this technology solution, and the investors that are along for the ride from the angel to the VC to the public equity investor when the company goes public. But we really still have some significant chasms that haven't been bridged successfully in that model. So when you live within that model, like I did, tracking private names and public names and selling research to VCs and to equity shops, and then, you know, obviously over the decade plus that I did this, it became natural that venture capitalists and their portfolio companies started coming to me because they would say, wow, you've got an audience of 3000 CIOs. Can you plug our new investment into them and hyper-accelerate visibility and traction and help us get some big logos as customers so we can really accelerate this pre-Series A type company so it gets faster to an IPO? And I realized, wow, there's a lot of power in doing that. So I wanted to think about how can I take that kind of power that was identified with this community? So here's a guy that's doing structured survey work with a very important, valuable group of big decision makers at the enterprise. And how can I apply that in a win-win-win model in a part of the model that historically has been not broken, but hasn't been solved? And that is really de-risking and accelerating ideation to Series A. So really, and and for me, obviously, I I can't be everything to everybody. I'm an enterprise technology-focused person, which I think is a big enough space, right? So this is you know, 99% software and 1% hardware, and it's going to be enterprise. So this is going to be B2B SaaS, and it's going to be what Chevron wants to buy, whether it's a cybersecurity, an infrastructure tool, a productivity tool, whatever have you, right? That competes with a Palo Alto and maybe gets acquired by a Palo Alto, competes with a Microsoft, a Slack, uh, a Netscaler, a Cisco. And so what, you know, what I have found is you have these great beginning of the cycle. So you have the incubators and the incubators are really there and identified to really flesh out and to validate there's a problem. And then the accelerator is supposed to pick up there and then accelerate that founder's journey now that it's been validated to get them to a prototype potentially, or at least get them up to speed on being really an entrepreneur because many people need to essentially go through a boot camp and come out of an accelerator just to be ready to be a business person and not a software engineer or to become a software engineer and not an entrepreneur, vice versa. That still doesn't get them to a global 2000 client and a paid for proof of concept. That doesn't also validate at scale that this problem is not more than anecdotally three people in tech you spoke to that say, hey, you're working on a good problem. And that doesn't get them a funded Series A. So I thought to myself, well, okay, Q1 
Can you build a factory belt? Can you build a manufacturing plant where it's founder and idea in and along this journey going through the plant, through the Ford Motor Company factory of building, you know, your Model T? Can you validate it overnight at scale? Can you can you identify uh, possible lead gen and sales opportunities? Can you identify and apply mentors? And then can you scale and accelerate the beta or the prototype to market? And then can you at scale bring it to interested parties so you can immediately sign logos? And with all that activity of completing product market fit, getting go-to-market messaging down, getting the IT stack to be enterprise grade, signing one or two Global 2000 logos, and getting all that done in 18 months or less, you're basically have de-risked, bulletproofed, and accelerated an idea with a savvy founder to be Series A ready. Because truly, as we know, the VCs have gotten earlier and earlier down the funding rounds for 20-something years, but largely because they want the majority of those great deals at the where their fund really wants to live, which might be the Series A or the Series B. It's not like they really want to do pre-seed rounds. They're doing them to get the allocation so they can really buy themselves the bigger seat in the Series A or the B. And that's really where they end up getting paid on their 10-year vintage for their shareholders and themselves. So if you can bring them more de-risked and accelerated companies that already have a good advisory board, product market fit, go-to-market message, 73 meetings, two signed clients, then you're probably going to have a dozen or so VCs that are willing to give it a really strong evaluation for a legitimate Series A check. And so, you know, that's that's where I think I can solve. And we've built essentially a platform and a tool that does real-time validation at scale. And from a data science perspective, identifies them. And then essentially at that point ends the incubator, which is 48 hours, and basically goes into, into an accelerator where we apply three to five of Global 2000 CIOs to mentor them, to get them to solve those three pieces on the party. And then, then at the end... Through our hyper acceleration and validation model at the beginning, we can bring them and do a road trip so they can go meet, call it the 75 CIOs within the network of 3000 that said they wanted a product preview when the beta was ready. And so we can help them hyper accelerate to having their first, hopefully two to three global 2000 customers, which will really get that series A done. And then it's really for the VCs to work with them and get them to that next bridge. But what we're trying to do is really launch them from ideation to series A. Fantastic, Thomas. That's a that's a great summary of the of the, of the project. Um, thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, I've learned an awful lot, and um, and yeah, best of luck with the new venture. Um, and uh, yeah, look forward to speaking in the future. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate being here. You guys do a great job, and I look forward to uh, tuning into the next one. Be well, sir. <laughs>